Hey, uh, this weekend is Martin Luther King Jr. weekend, and uh, we're kind of excited about that around here because you talk about an individual that changed the world, whose politics was really the kingdom of heaven. He wasn't perfect, none of us are, but he understood something about what it means to be in the kingdom. And uh, so I hope that uh, you're celebrating uh, this weekend well, that you're thinking on that, especially because this Wednesday is inauguration day. And of course, we're thinking about this weekend, Martin Luther King Jr., who was a change agent in our nation. God's called us to be change agents and uh, that we be a part of what's happening happening in in our community and in our country. And so I just ask you, if you would join me and be praying for Wednesday, pray for leadership, pray for humility, pray for peace, pray that, uh, pray that God wins the day by turning hearts toward him. That is the hope for our country. And so let it be a time where you pray like never before that God would usher in his presence and there would be revival in America, that God would convict hearts, bring people to him. That's the answer, friends, to the world's problems is Jesus Christ. And so be praying for a a great inauguration day. Now, I want to welcome you because we have been in a series that we've called The Real Deal. And what we're doing for the month of January, is we're going through concepts that we find in the book of First Peter. So hopefully, as you're at home, it's cool, we're meeting from house to house, uh, like the scripture says in Acts. And they met in temple courts, and they met from house to house. And so that's how you're doing it this morning, if you're watching this, which is cool. But uh, hopefully you've been in First Peter, we've been focused on chapters 2 and 3, and we've uh, kind of gone in, other, in some other areas to, to supplement the study but really chapters two and three. And it is a very practical book. And today, I'm going to read to you a long passage because the next passage is really the next major section of this letter. And it really describes how the Christian is supposed to live their life in a hostile or cynical world. In fact, before we read it, I want to say this to you. This passage is probably more relevant now than it has been in the last 1,800 years. Those of you that know your history, you know well that for about the last 1,800 years, Christianity, at least in the West, has become so prominent that it really has been, for 1,800 years, the favored religion. Um, Until probably the last 30 to 50 years, uh, culture today is really turning from the ethics and and, uh, the godliness that you find in the Christian faith. And so being a Christian today really does mean more and more that we're living in a hostile and cynical world. So this is very applicable and practical for you and me. So I hope as we read these words, you take them to heart as God's words. So here we go. First Peter chapter two, let's pick up at verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as to the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. 
Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Slaves, it goes on. Submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he is conscious of God. What an interesting statement. To bear up under unjust suffering because you're conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Now notice this. <laughs> to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. And by his wounds, you have been healed. You who were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Father, I pray, Jesus, that you would bless your word and that you would guide me now as, as we walk through these scriptures together and that you would speak into people's hearts truth in these very challenging and confusing days. We give you the praise in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Now, friends, the whole way this whole section breaks down is the first two, two verses that we just read are really an introduction. So if you have notes, you can look back at those first two verses. He says, dear friends, since you're aliens and strangers, he goes on to say, I expect you to really do four things. And he's talking about our status in this world. He says the Christian is an alien and the Christian is a stranger. And he says, first, here's what you need to do. You need to abstain from sinful desires. Now, if you remember last week, we talked about the word epithemia, and it really just means over-desire. It may not be a moral issue. It may just be a desire that could be good, but it's not meant to be God. It's not meant to control your life. It's when even the good things or the bad things, the desires of your heart, lead you from God to where you're no longer acting godly. Epithemia, abstain from those. Second, he says, live good lives and do good deeds that God expects us to act like his priests. Why? We talked about this in the first week because the priest which Peter had an image of, the high priest, is somebody that had special access to God, access to the holy of holies, which is now your body. That, therefore, you and I, if we are Christians, should act different. Third, that we would expect to be attacked. That you will be accused by people who are outside the Christian community. It happened to Jesus. It'll happen to you if you act like Jesus. Fourth, act in such a way that they see and glorify God. Now, that's all the introduction. And I want to say, it's right here that the question comes up. How do we, as Christ followers, deal with the accusations of people so that they could then see the glory of God, which is the goal, according to Peter? Now, guys, 
This is a fascinating passage and there are some fascinating answers to this. So what I want to do today is I want to give you three lifestyle maxims is what I would call them. I'm going to give you three of those and today we're going to look at culture and government. What are maxims? Maxims are rules or guidelines for living and these are biblical guidelines that should guide your civil life. It should really guide your whole life, but especially how you relate to culture and the government in a godly way. Now listen, this is why this is so important before we dig into this. You have to remember that in the first 200 years of Christianity, they literally changed the world. You've got to ask, how did they do that? How in such a short period of time did a religion that shouldn't have even existed literally change the globe? Well, it was in part on the basis of these biblical maxims that the people agreed together to live by. Let me give them to you. Write these down. Number one, number one, doctrine needs to always be the basis of everything that you do. Doctrine has to be the basis of every action that you choose to take. Now, listen, one of the great things about the Bible and about Bible study, as Martin Luther once said, notice this quote coming up on the screen here by Martin Luther. He said, the word of a human being is a little thing. It flies up into the air and then is gone. But the word of God is heavier than heaven and earth. Isn't that a great statement? Now, what Martin Luther was getting at, by the way, Martin Luther King Jr., he was born as Michael. He changed his name per his father changing his name to Martin in honor of this great reformer that you see right here. But what does he mean? Well, as you look at this quote, let's just remember what Jesus said for just a minute. Jesus said, Matthew 5, 18, for verily I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass, not one jot or one tittle will pass from the law until all is fulfilled. Of course, I want to show you something for just a minute. As, as, you look, as you were looking at that quote, go ahead and go to this next slide. This is what a jot and a tittle was. Go ahead and go to that slide with the jot and the tittle for me so everybody could see this, if you would. There you go. The jot and the tittle. What was a jot? A jot was a letter in Hebrew. And of course, a tittle was a part of a letter. And so literally what Jesus is saying, he's saying, I tell you the truth, every written word of God that's found in the Bible right here is heavier than heaven and earth. Martin Luther was saying the very thing that Jesus is saying. Now, guys, you got to get this. What does that teach us? It teaches us that behind everything that we do, there needs to be God's written word. <laughs> How do you decide how you live your life? You've got to go to God's word. How do you decide about your personal morality? You go to God's word. How do you decide your identity? How do you decide your sexual behavior? How do you decide your civil behavior? You go to doctrine. Now, I realize that we live in a day in which people say, well, that's confusing because so many people interpret God's word differently. And I would just say to you, friend, there is a science to the health, a healthy way of doing scriptural interpretation. And you're right. When people back off from sound interpreting methods, then yeah, they can read into this anything that they want. But it's like a lab experiment. If you take a lab experiment outside of the controlled environment, you're not going to get the same results. It doesn't mean that the Bible's not a sound authority. It just means that people misuse it. But when you go 
to God's word and use healthy methods of biblical interpretation. That's why I love, by the way, that Pastor Steve has a Bible Institute around here. And there are great teachers out there. There are, there are some not so good ones, but there are some great ones that teach you how to do this stuff. But here's, here's what Martin Luther was saying. Here's what Jesus is saying. Listen, behind everything, there has to be a doctrine. Peter never tells you how to do anything until he gives you a doctrine. Paul never tells you how to do anything unless he gives you a doctrine. Now, I just read to you this, and the last few weeks I've gone with you, this long doctrinal section where he explains we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom, we are members of a holy nation, we're a royal priesthood, and Peter does all of that before he tells you what to do. Then he says, now based on that doctrine, here's how you relate to government. Here's how you relate to the workplace. Here's how you relate to your spouse. He starts with doctrine. Friend, listen to me. Come on, listen. There's no godly living unless you start with truth. There's no godly living without right theology. That's how Jesus did it. Before Jesus ever got to the nitty gritty of practicality, he says, remember doctrine. Now, the Bible says that. I'm going to tell you, that's not a very popular idea today. In fact, as I'm saying this to you, it might even trouble some of you because you say, I haven't learned the Bible that well. And I would say, that's why we've encouraged you for weeks to begin to get into God's word. Let me explain something to you. One of the problems with our nation right now and many other nations, but definitely in our nation, is that people have made truth ambiguous. Especially in the days that everybody's claiming fake news, which, which is, a, is a sad cultural thing. As I heard it said in the documentary that you'll see coming up here, which by the way, it's on Netflix. It's an unbelievable documentary called The Social Dilemma. And it's talking about the power of social media over the minds of people today. But one of the things they pointed out is the manipulative danger of tech companies to put you in an echo chamber where you think everybody thinks like you. And it's not the information age anymore, it's the disinformation age. It's the age where truth itself has become elusive. And there are cultural trends of, well, that's your truth, and this is my truth, and nobody knows who to trust anymore, and everybody questions authority. Now, it's in this kind of a society with this kind of technology and scope that I'm, I'm gonna say to you today, I thank God that I have his words. And I thank God that he said, not one iota, not one bit, one shot will go away until all is fulfilled. Why? Because there is a standard of doctrine that you get from his word if you begin to study it that cuts through all of this stuff in culture today. If you depend upon it, let me read to you something about God's word. For example, take a look at this scripture coming up right here. Hebrews chapter four, it says, for the word of God is living and active and it's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Now listen, guys. Just listen to me for just a minute. It doesn't matter what's going on in the news no matter what's happening in the world that I see on different news channels, I go back to God's word to tell me how to live. I am not moved by what I see on television or on social media because that's not what teaches me what to do or how to trust. Why? Because I know that God knows it all. 
He knows more than CNN. He knows more than Fox. He knows more than MSNBC. Look at this. The verse goes on and says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Listen to me. What am I saying? I'm saying that the scripture tells me how to live in spite of what I hear. So again, Take a look at all these news, places that people go today and Christians go to get their information and teach them about what's really going on. I'm telling you, I don't go to Fox News. I don't go to CNN. I don't go to OAN or MSNBC. I definitely don't go to QAnon, which is a cultish kind of thing. And and it's so sad to me how many Christians are being swayed and their theology is being changed by these types of mediums if we spent half the time digging into God's word and saying God how would you teach me to respond to people today if we spent half the time that we're spending in these on these platforms listening to frankly false prophecies and all sorts of conspiracy theories guys be careful be careful about this you say what do you mean Well, let's just go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says, for the time will come when men will not put up with, there it is, sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Now, that is a description of our day. Everybody is living in an echo chamber and just hearing voices like themselves. Be careful about that. In fact, talking about ideas, I want for you to get this. This is not shame. This is God's word, and I want for you to see this. Talking about ideas. Paul says about the wild speculations of his day. Just think about the speculations of our day. But look what Paul says we need to do. Take a look at this, this next scripture, if you just throw this on the screen for everybody. He says, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God Notice that. God's the highest authority. So everything, all the other ideas, submit to him, and we take captive every thought, and we subordinate it to Jesus Christ, to healthy doctrine. Now, I'm afraid there aren't enough people doing that today. Now, let me just get back to my point about doctrine, because I've got to hurry. Culture doesn't like doctrine today. You know what culture likes? American culture. American culture likes Christian practice, but they don't like Christian doctrine. People like love your neighbor, give and help the needy, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. People like that. But people don't want you to tell them about truth. People say, oh, don't give me the doctrines. What do they tell you? They say it divides people. For example, if you say that Jesus is God, well, that's going to divide you from the Muslims and the Jews. Or if you start talking about the authority of the Bible, well, that's going to divide the the Catholics from the Protestants. So what do people want today? People say today in our culture, well, let's get away from doctrine because doctrine creates prejudice. Everybody has a right to believe what they want to believe. Loving service, yes. Loving behavior, yes. Doctrine, no. That is a very popular idea. Here's what I want to say to you. Friend, You're never going to find that in the New Testament, ever. For example, when Paul says that you need to forgive people, which, by the way, is a good thing to do, you forgive people, he says, instead, be kind to each other, be tender-hearted. Notice this scripture in Ephesians 4. 
He says, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. He gives you a doctrine. When Peter says, I want you to live servant lives, which he does, what does he say? Let's go to it. He says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. Now, that's the only way that they did it, through doctrine. So, listen, do you know why they did this? I, gotta, yeah, I'm so excited about this because... you. I want everybody to understand this truth. If you don't do it this way, anything else is inconsistent. For example, if you say to me, well, pastor, don't insist on a doctrine. In fact, you say to me, you can't have doctrine. You realize you've just created a doctrine. Do we all understand that? Because with truth, the buck has to stop somewhere. When somebody says you shouldn't convert people, well, the moment you say that, that's what you're doing. You're converting people. If you say to me, dogma's not important, well, you just created a dogma. <laughs> There's no way out. That's the truth. If you say to me, pastor, you can't cram that down people's throats, you understand, the moment you say that to me, you're cramming that down my throat. Because with authority, that is the only way that you can go. Now, write this down. This is important. All prescription for living must be based in truth. It has to be. Or there's no reason you should do it. And where do you go for truth? There's nothing like God's word. This is the place you go. So when you say to me, well, let's forget about religion or let's forget about doctrine, I'm going to say to you, well, why don't you show me some truth that tells me I should forget about doctrine? Do it. If you say to me, well, pastor, it's because I think so, then I say, oh, well, then you're the authority. That makes you God. Do you see the problem? The question is, what authority is sufficient enough for you to appeal to? And I'm saying to you, desperately, use God's word. Get into God's word. And be careful to interpret it in a responsible way. Don't be an armchair theologian that, well, it says it, you know, it says it in English and I just read it this way and so this is what it, I hate the statement, by the way, this is what it means to me. I wanna know what did it mean to the original hearers in its cultural and historical context and then I apply the principle because it was inspired by God. Now, that's the first thing. How do you live in society today? Everything you do has gotta be based on doctrine. Number two, write this down. We are aliens and we are strangers. Now, I've already said that, but what does that mean? This means that America is not our true country. <laughs> Boy, that might offend somebody. And I'm gonna say to you, I love America. I'm thankful to God that I was born here. But it is not my true country. See, the scripture's pretty clear about this if you've not read it. That Hebrews, for example, 11, talks about the people who would follow God in faith. And it says they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. 
And people who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. For they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God because he has prepared a city for them. Aliens, strangers, what does that mean? Let me start with aliens and be clear with you. Aliens means clearly, if you're an alien, that this is not where your citizenship is. Notice how Philippians puts it. Guys, take a look at this. If you'd go to Philippians for me, let's all look at this together. It says, for we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives and we are eagerly waiting for him to return as our savior. What is he saying? See, Paul understood something. He's talking about in the Greek, your polituma. What is polituma? Polituma is your politics. There's so many people talking about politics and literally what Paul is saying is your politics should be in heaven. You're not the Republican party. You're not the Democratic party. You're not, the, um, you're not an independent party. You operate in the party of heaven. Your politics are the politics in heaven and that's how you should live on the basis of that. This is what Peter's getting at. What does it mean to be a Christian? And in a sense, it's the hardest way to live. It's the hardest thing because now you have rights and you have privileges, but you also have responsibilities to only act according to the politics of heaven because that's who you belong to. And it affects the way you act. This is why Paul says in the verse before Philippians, same book, he says, dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. Why? Because their polituma is on earth. It's not in heaven. They're not operating according to the politics of heaven. It's all about this world that says they're headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things and they only think about what? Life here on earth. Guys, there is so much I could go into. In fact, we could do a whole series on what it means to be a citizen of heaven. Maybe we will next year or at some point in the future. But here's what I'm saying. Be very careful about how you get dominated by earthly politics, by US politics. Why? Because we're aliens. And we operate according to a different politics. Now we're also strangers. What does that mean? Peter says, you have to know you're a stranger. Now, here's a really nerdy example, but I'm a nerd, so I'm gonna give it to you. So just forgive me for just a minute. If you've seen this movie, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, or you've read the books, by the way, which are better, and, 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 you're, and you study how you want to understand a Christian comes to Christ and how a Christian starts to relate to the world. See, in this movie, there are these little guys and they're called hobbits. Now, they're kind of regular creatures. They're average. They're not particularly, you know, noble or highfalutin. But a few of these hobbits get involved with a group of angelic beings that don't live on earth. And it's, it's a story because... Because these beings, they live in a paradise. They live in this immortal land across the Western Sea. It's incredible. Now, again, this group of regular guys that you see here, they go off with, with this tremendous race and these high and lofty beings, and they go on an adventure with them. And if you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. And they fight these tremendous battles, and they win glory on the battlefield. And they go through ordeals and battles. They go through high water. They go through mountains. They go through fire and snow. And these guys, these regular guys, 
they win a tremendous battle and they save their little home. They save their homeland. They get victory. Now, they come back after years, if you know the story, after all these ordeals, after these great experiences with these high angelic race. But one of the problems is they come back and they're changed. They've now become leaders of their homeland. And they have this new perspective. They've been taken out of their homeland. And they start to see things in a way that the natives in their homeland would never see. <laughs> they laugh a little louder now. They sing a little better. They cry a little more. These guys are just now bigger people. They're greater people. They now have a depth that their fellow citizens of the old homeland don't understand. There's, there's almost this boldness about them. They've become leaders. In many ways, these guys help their homeland more than they ever could, but they begin to realize something's changed. See, the life of this immortal land across the sea, it's now passed into their hearts. And they're not happy in their homeland anymore. They love their homeland. It's a complex relationship because they love their homeland, but it's not their homeland. And it's difficult for their neighbors to even relate to them. They don't even really belong there anymore. They love their homeland, but their homeland can't understand them because they realize their true home is across the water. Do you see what I'm getting at? And if I could quote Tolkien's character, Frodo, when he says, Tolkien says, how do you pick up the threads of an old life when in your heart you begin to understand there is no going back? Now, friends, Jesus Christ prays for his followers and he tells God, the world hates them because they do not belong to the world just as I don't belong to the world. Jesus says, you're strangers here now and you're gonna find you're more, more useful to this world. You're gonna have more integrity. You're gonna have more stability. Hopefully you're gonna have more love, but the world's not gonna understand you. Let's go back to 1 Peter again, if you would. He says, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Now, friends, listen to me. All of that right there that I just said, it goes into that word strangers, aliens. Now, here's the last maxim. You ready? Write this down. It's gonna be our last one. Let me touch on it here and then we'll be done. We choose to live as free servants. Write that down. That's important. We choose to live as free servants. What do I mean? Let's go back to verse 13. Peter says, submit yourself for the Lord's sake. Notice it's for the Lord's sake you do this. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as to the supreme authority, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish men. Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover up for evil. Live as servants of God. Why do I say free servants? Because you live as free men, but as free men, for the Lord's sake, you live as a servant of God. What does that mean? It means I know that I'm free in Christ. I know that I have liberty. And it's out of that freedom that I always choose to take the position of a servant. We have said this over the last year in so many ways. And I want so desperately 
for us to internalize this concept. Why? Because of doctrine. Because that's what Jesus did. Let me explain. What is Peter doing here? Peter's talking about the need and nature of authority. And here's how it starts. Write this down. This is very important. Peter is saying you have to respect the need and the nature of human authority. Okay, now, if you just, as you're writing that down, if we just look back, Peter said, submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. You have to respect the need and nature of human authority. Now, I'm just gonna say, I don't think there's any more unpopular teaching today than this. It's kind of like truth. Because in America right now, we have a tremendous anti-authority spirit. It's, it's crazy. I think there's spiritual warfare going on. And yet God's word tells the Christian, fear God, honor the king. Slaves, submit yourselves to masters with all respect and so on. What does that mean? Well, this passage tells us that it's God that instituted human authority. It's God that's behind it. It's God that established it. Now, guys, listen. You see authority in the church. There's an authority to this church. Your pastors have an authority to guide you, to lead you. There's an authority in civil government. There's an authority in families. There's all sorts of institutions of authority. Why? Because God knows you can't live without authority. Do you understand that? We can't live without authority. That's why what's been happening in our country is so tragic. Let me give you an example. Musicians are awesome, aren't they? Musicians are great, but... What if, what if musicians didn't submit to the key? What if musicians didn't submit to the same key? What if they decided, I'm not going to submit to the composer? Well, I'm going to tell you what you won't have then. You won't have music. Now listen to me. Every time you play a game, every time you stop at a stoplight... Every time you're involved with music, you're submitting yourself to authority. Or, you know, there's chaos. And that's the danger of what's happening right now. Here's what's happening in our culture. Everybody is becoming an authority unto themselves, and everybody's screaming on Facebook, educate yourself. By that they mean, read what I read and agree with what I think, based on the information that I choose to believe from these sources. And I would say, that is dangerous. And then somebody says to me, well then pastor, I, you know, I would like a group, you know, I remember I was in college, I studied Rousseau, you know, and it's the people that create government. No, God says that he's behind institutions of authority and government. Somebody says to me again, I was gonna say, pastor, I believe in a group, you know, there should be the group, there should be no one in authority, it should be the group in authority. And I'd say, well, yeah, but you understand, that just means the group, your little group is now the authority. There's always going to be an authority. Otherwise, there's chaos. I want you to consider something. If you're a student of history, you know, for me, my major in college was either going to be history or sociology because they fascinated me. And this is a little sociological study that was done. You're going to see a book coming up here called The Design of Discord. And it's a study that was done a long time ago. And it's really the study of a suffering that's called anime. But it was originated by this guy. He was a Frenchman by the name of Emile Durkheim. And, and Durkheim, excuse me. And Emile 
um, he, he was in France, and it was a time of, Fran of French prosperity and capitalism. It was a time when people were getting more and more money, and they were living more and more independently. But he noticed that suicide rates were going up. And they couldn't figure out why are so many people committing suicide. People were, had more wealth than ever before, but he noticed this. He noticed that as people reached for greater and greater independence, that there was more lawlessness and authoritylessness. And as there was less authority, people were committing more suicide. Why? It's a sociological study because people don't know which end is up. People don't feel that they know who to go to for what's right or wrong anymore. There is a hunger and there is a yearning for authority that's God-given because he's the highest authority. See, God knows you can't function. You need to respect human authority. Why do Christians respect human authority? Why does North Point Church respect human authority and civil government? Because Christians know the authority that lies behind the authority. Friend, what lies behind the authority of your parents? What lies behind the authority of civil government? Even if that particular civil government isn't very good. Even if you have parents that are good or bad, what lies behind their authority? The Bible says it's God. Let me go back to Martin Luther again. I love what this reformer said. The word of a human being is a little thing. It flies up into the air and then it's gone. But the word of God is heavier than heaven and earth. That's why we go to God's word for authority. <laughs> Because we see the authority behind the authority. He's the highest authority. But here's the flip side. You ready? And some of you are already thinking this. You're saying, but pastor, because he's the highest authority, my politics are in heaven. You say, I'm a citizen of God's kingdom. Well, doesn't that cause me to be critical of authority? Can't I measure authority into that? I'd say, sure. Write this down. Based on him being the highest authority, you have to evaluate human authority in light of God's word. Write that down. You have to evaluate human authority in light of God's word. Why? Because unless there's an authority above the human authority by which it's judged, unless there is a moral standard that is higher than human authority, unless there's an authority behind human authority, then there is no difference between authority and authoritarianism. I mean, it's just whoever seizes power. There has to be an authority behind all human authority. Do you understand? That's why what's happened in recent days with the thing in the Capitol, that's why that kind of action is always going to be wrong. Because God's authority, the highest authority, says that's not the way we do it. And those who would excuse themselves and say it doesn't apply, they're not appealing to the highest moral authority, which is God. By the way, this is why John Adams said, we have to always go back to God John Adams said it this way. He said, you know, we have no government. One of our founding fathers, he said, we have no government armed in power, capable of contending in human passions, unbridled by morality and religion. Stop. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying there is no government that will help us if everyone is just led by their own passion. And if you throw morality out the door, you throw religion out the door, we have a problem. He goes on to say, no, our constitution was made for a moral and religious people. Stop there for just a moment. Why? Because he understood there has to be a higher authority to whom we yield. Or what's going to happen? Our government will be, he says, wholly inadequate 
to the government of any other. And friend, that's what we see happening right now because too many people have lost this. And we're not leading people to know it like we should anymore. Instead, we're more concerned about social media and venting our frustrations. Boy, if we exerted that effort into prayer and evangelism. Do you remember the place, by the way, talking about questioning government where the religious authorities tell the disciples, they say, you can't preach about Jesus anymore? What does Peter say in Acts 4? Peter says, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in God's sight to listen to you rather than to God, you have to judge. Now, what's he saying there? He's acknowledging to that local government that there's an authority behind you. (laughs) You say, well, pastor, what do we do when human authority doesn't agree with God and they start to mistreat us. What do we do, pastor, if it's not a good authority? And I would say back to you, well, this is the exact situation that Peter's writing, much worse, by the way, than ours. And this is the exact situation that Jesus was in. And I first would say to you, you refer to point number one, you only act in in accordance with sound doctrine. You need to get to know Jesus. You need to get to know your doctrine. And then, if you just write this down, you always, always act like Jesus. In all circumstances. Why? Because Jesus was the ultimate free servant. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me. He says, I lay it down by choice. And it's the politics of heaven, the polituma of heaven that changed the world. That's what changed society. That's what changed. It wasn't, it wasn't votes. It was the culture that was changing because Christians that were changed, the real deal, and they lived life. This is why Peter can say so confidently, let's look again before we're done, guys. He says, slaves even, submit yourselves to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For this is commendable if a man bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because he's what? Conscious of God. He's the highest authority. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Why? Because you're a stranger and alien here. You're a citizen of the kingdom. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you as an example that you should follow in his steps. Now, this is, guys, I'll I'll close with these thoughts here. This is what's so wonderful about being a free servant. Because you know there's an authority behind the human authority, (laughs) that's why you serve. That's why you know you're serving and laying down your life. See, there's a kind of noble authority noble loyalty that we have because we know Jesus is behind authority. We treat it with respect because we know that God set it up this way. But we're also free thinkers. We can critique the human authority by God's word, but we even choose to endure it even when we're suffering because we know God uses it to build us. But we have critical consent. We can evaluate it in the light of scripture critical thinkers. To be a Christian is, is an amazing thing. We proactively participate in culture, but we do it like Jesus. We do it in a godly way. Guys, Go back to God's word. I don't care if 99% of the people think that this thing you're hearing on social media or in whatever news channel you watch is right. What does the Bible say? We're critical 
but we're godly. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, thank you for my friends. Thank you for my church family. Thank you for your work in their lives. Your, your word says that the gospel's like a seed that gets planted into our heart, but for something to grow, something has to die. Help us to put to death everything that would, that would not make us strangers and aliens. This is not our home. This is a pit stop. Lord, help us, Lord, to live for you and live rightly. Help us to be the real deal in a cynical age. God, thank you for each one. I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you and they've heard an ethic. In fact, I, I'm just gonna, you can just look at me if you want to. I'm just gonna pause this prayer for just a minute to say, if you've heard about this Christian ethic and it's been foreign to you, if you've not quite heard it put this way and you've said, man, that appeals to me. I wanna know Jesus Christ. Just tell somebody through our social media, raise a hand, uh, ask for prayer. Uh, text 58124, you'll get information into your hands. You just text the word today because we want you to know Jesus, but I'm gonna lead us in a prayer. Jesus, we want to know you. We wanna walk after you. We wanna walk like you. Help us to do it. Again, Father, I praise you for every family. Would you strengthen them? Strengthen people that are battling COVID. Lord, let us be servants in this age that are battling this invisible thing, this virus. Help us to serve and love people through it. God, help our church. We give you honor and praise in Jesus' name. And everyone said, at home, amen, from house to house. Well, thanks, guys. Again, if you want to pray with somebody today, you can do that online. Uh, we're going to get ready for our live service at 11. I encourage you to come to that. By the way, it's beautiful outdoors. The weather's great. Um, but uh, we're going to be doing that regularly. Don't forget about all the men's and women's studies and small groups that are starting up. Don't forget about our core classes. That's our discipleship method. How do you grow in your faith? So get connected to that. I'm gonna turn it back to our host. God bless you guys. We'll see you later.